This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith. I'll be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We are actually on the other side of Christmas Day recording our last of the six in our Christmas series. Uh, But today we're going to take in a passage that you have heard a lot, I'm assuming, and that you have almost certainly received on Christmas cards, and it comes from the prophet Isaiah. And let me just read uh, the the punchline, the payoff verse first, and then we're going to go back and give context to this because it really brings out some some beautiful things about this verse that you see and hear all the time. So Isaiah chapter nine, verse six: For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Have you heard that verse a lot? Yeah, at least part of that. I think mostly the six and the first part of seven. Yeah, yeah, for unto us and then all the names of God, the Prince of Peace and all that. Like that verse has been around forever, and it's it's something that I can remember seeing when I wasn't even a believer, you know, running around on Christmas cards. But the backstory of that, which you never hear, because Christianity and the church were really, really good at just yanking verses out of context and not understanding where they came from. Uh, But when you get the context for it, it's actually, I think, even more beautiful. Yeah, I've never read the verses before this before. Okay, well, so, okay, we're going to walk through it together. We'll we'll go through it. So Isaiah chapter 9 is coming right after Isaiah chapter 8, if you know how to count. Yep. (laughs) And and Isaiah chapter 8 is all about Isaiah getting the people ready for exile. Basically, what he's saying is like the nations that the kingdoms of Israel and Judah have become totally wicked. We have walked away from God. God has begged and pleaded with us to turn back to him. We've spat in his face. And so now the way that the the judgment upon Israel in the north and Judah in the south comes is God sends two different empires. The first one is going to be the Assyrian Empire. And we've talked about that. Not good guys. They are not good guys. They are terrorists. They are cruel. They are, they're like butchers of the ancient world, the world's first terroristic empire. And they come through and they conquer the northern 10 tribes of Israel, and they're going to take them off into exile. So if you lived up north near the Sea of Galilee, you know, tribes like Naphtali and Zebulun and Ephraim and Manasseh and Dan and all those tribes... They get conquered right out of the gates, and they're gone, and that happens 722 B.C. Okay, just 722. So you fast forward 140 years or so, 
And the second wave of invasion comes, and that's going to be from the Babylonians, and they wipe out the or take into exile the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so when you have this flurry of prophets that's coming, you know, from Isaiah, who's writing around 750 BC, all the way to Malachi, what are they all saying? They're all saying, oh my goodness, we're being invaded. The kingdom is collapsing. The kingdom that David and Solomon built around 1000 BC, you know, a few hundred years have passed. Now it's all crumbling. It's all falling apart. The people have turned away from God and everything is falling apart. And so that's why one of the themes that you see in all the prophets is, God is going to send a king who's going to establish an everlasting righteousness, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting peace, because that's what they're looking for, because they're seeing a nation that is sifting through their fingers. And Isaiah in chapter 8 has been talking about, okay, you northern tribes, you're all being conquered. That's what you want to hear. Yeah, great. All right. Thanks, Isaiah. But he begins chapter 9 with a promise. Hmm. You ready? Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So you can imagine he's writing to a people that expect like, okay, if all of our homeland is taken and we're thrown into exile and no doubt people are going to die, it's going to be really awful. But he's saying there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so I want to pause there because he's talking about this king that's going to be coming here. He's talking about the, the period of time where you're coming out of exile and the people of God had lived in shame. They've, they've lived in defeat. They've lived in seeming gloom. And now God is saying, no, 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 no. Gloom is not going to have the last word over the people of God. And then he mentions these two tribes, which is interesting, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And if you if you knew a, a map of the ancient world and where these tribes were, this is right up near the Sea of Galilee. Like Naphtali, Naphtali is going to be the northwestern area of Galilee. It's where Jesus does 70% of his ministry. And so when Isaiah says, picks these two tribes in particular and says, man, it used to be darkness of gloom, not so much for these regions anymore because Naphtali light is coming to you. Hmm. And Zebulun is the tribe where you find the the city of Nazareth. So it picks out these two places where Jesus, you know, has his childhood in Nazareth in in the region of Zebulun, but he does most of his ministry in the region of Naphtali. And what's interesting about those two particular tribes is they're like the first of the 12 tribes to go apostate. They're the first to walk away from the faith when they get conquered and the Southern tribes are sending up messengers saying, come down. You can still celebrate Passover with us. We want to invite you back into the fold. These tribes are like, we want nothing to do with God. We've moved on. Hmm. And so now, now understanding that, that one, these, these tribes are the first to walk away from God. They've been conquered by the Assyrians. Everything about them is, is like, seems gone and forgotten. This is going to be where the Messiah comes and says, no, you first. Hmm. Like, doesn't that just scream the character of Jesus? Yeah, it doesn't make sense to anyone on earth, but it's the purpose of it all. 
Yeah, I mean, you would you would think he would be like, oh, but Judah, mm-hmm. you know, the place of Jerusalem, the holy city, the city that gets all the attention, the one that held out the longest in its faithfulness to Yahweh before being conquered, that you're going to be rewarded. But it's like, nope, the first ones who ran away from me, that's who I'm going after. The ones most unworthy of my affection, that's who I'm targeting. And so in the former times, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And what do you hear there? It's literally Galilee of the Gentiles. This place has been conquered by the Assyrians, and then it'll be the Babylonians, then it'll be the Greeks, and then it'll be the Romans. Like, this land is so now populated and intermixed with Gentiles but just because it's now Galilee of the Gentiles, it's so far into the nations, God has not walked away from it. He loves the Gentiles too. And so he hits on this in verse two. He says, the people who walked in darkness. Well, what is that? what's that getting at? The people who were the most wicked, the people who ran the farthest away from me, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, deep darkness on them has light shown you have and so like you get the idea like this is teaching you one of the gospel paradigms which is you can never run too far away from god Mm. in fact the the harder you run it's like the more (laughs) vigorously he chases you and that is it shows us the measure of his grace that that you can't be in too deep of a darkness for his light to penetrate and to shine on you. That shows his heart. He chases after the the prodigals. And it shows us like the two ways we get in a darkness. Like we walk into darkness out of our own volition all the time. Mm-hmm. Like we're choosing to go into it and they did that. But also there's darkness forced upon us because we're broken people in a broken world in a dark world. So in both aspects, light shines. Yeah, totally. And so you're going to find a remnant of faithful people that are back at Zebulun and Naphtali when this comes. But God is throwing out those two tribes. One, because that's where you're going to find Jesus. But it's also a demonstration of his radical grace. And so you'll hear those verses. And in context of Christmas, you know, you'll hear, you know, the deep, the deep gloom and the darkness and, you know. The- it gives us Advent and Christmas. So people like the part A and part B. Yeah, so we read those, but I'll tell you the part that we skip over. Once you get to verse three, you're, nobody ever quotes this on the Christmas Never heard card. It. <laughs> you know, we, we jump over three, four, and five, and we go straight to verse six because it's like, I don't know what any of this means. It is odd. It's a little odd. Yeah. So, I mean, I get one and two. That's beautiful. And Christmas cards, you can only put so many lines. <laughs> yeah, true. And you don't want... You got to have your faces plus a verse. Yeah. It's got to have space for that. And it's going to talk about war and mm. stuff like that. Blood's you know? not usually good on a Christmas card. <laughs> right? So so this one, they, they just put the ellipses, <laughs> if, <laughs> if anything, here. So verse 3, it says, you have multiplied the nation. And remember, it's talking about a, a, a part of the, the kingdom of God that had been thrown into exile, right? And now he's coming and he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What, now it's talking about like dividing the spoil. That's something you do after victory in war. You know, joy at the harvest. That's something you do when your land's at peace and you can bring in the abundance and, and dancing around with joy. Like 
what what part of the world are you describing? You know, but it's it's giving you this perspective that even in the midst of this gloom, God is shining a light and he is making his people victorious. Gee, how is he going to do that? Verse four, it says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Hang on to that line. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And so let me tell you what this is saying. It's looking at this region of the world, talking about coming out of exile. And it's saying, hey, you remember like all of the strife that you've been through, all of the despair, all of the gloom, put it away because now I'm telling you, you're about to walk into a season of abundance. You're about Hmm. to walk into a season of joy. You are about to walk into this victorious season where you are going to be the ones that get to divide the spoil. And I'm going to take the yoke off your shoulder and I'm going to take the staff of the foreign ruler off your shoulder and the rod of your oppressor. And it's going to be broken just like it was in the day of Midian. And I'm going to burn all the implements that you need for war because you don't have to fight like you've always fought in the past. And then that's when it says, for unto us a child is born, which we'll get to later. Like he's coming to fight for you. That's that's the idea. But now when it says that he's going to do all of that stuff, all of this triumphant movement, it gives you a hint and it says you have broken it as on the day of Midian. What's Midian? That's the important part, which is why we skip these verses. Right? It's so, it's a, but it's a beautiful thing. So Midian in the Bible, this is talking about the war that Gideon is going to lead to lead his people into freedom. And so if you go back and you look at Judges 6, we're going to do a lot of summarizing. Gideon versus Midian. Gideon versus Midian. Hey, that's a good way to memorize that. I've never, never thought of that before. You're welcome. But Gideon... If you, if you open up to Judges 6, the, the people have come into the promised land, but they've immediately walked away from God, right? Gee, that sounds familiar. What's Isaiah talking about right here? He's talking about his people that have given their hearts to anything and everything but God, and then what happens to them? They get conquered. They get sent into exile. What's, Classic. What's going on in the days of Gideon? Same thing. The same thing. They've given their hearts to all these pagan gods, And now the way that the author of the book of Judges describes it, they're getting targeted from every which direction. Like, I mean, the the Midianites are the main enemy that's coming at them, but they're getting hit from the Edomites, the Moabites. They're getting hit from the Philistines, from all the Ammonites, from all directions. If you look at a map and you know where those places are, you can basically like go on every side of Israel and put an arrow coming at them. That's what this battlefront looks like. (laughs) They are overwhelmed and the Midianites are particularly cruel. So when you first meet Gideon, he's in a, a wine press hiding and he's threshing wheat. He's th- you know throwing up wheat in the air, trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. So he's in the stone wine press so that nobody could see him because he knows if the Midianites see him, the, the text tells us they just come through and destroy everything and they kill people. Like So all of Israel is in hiding and God comes to him and he's like, mighty warrior, (laughs) you know, even as he's hiding, which is weird that God sees us beyond our circumstances and our performance, isn't it? 
Like God, God comes to Will and Sam and says, you righteous ones. Hmm. And we're like, wait, what? Yeah, not us. <laughs> that, that doesn't fit the bill. But God can see you in ways that are different than how you see yourself because he sees the finished product. And that's going to be the call on Gideon's life. He's, he's naming what he will be. Yeah, completely. And he is going to be a mighty warrior by the end of this. And in fact, he falls at the end, but, but it's a good part of his life. We're not going to get to that part. <laughs> he's, he's a mighty warrior. And so God, in this moment, calls him to fight. And then Gideon has this really, really weird moment where, you know, he, when he realizes that this is God, it's the angel of the Lord. He says, ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid, which is always the words on the lips of the angel of the Lord when he encounters someone, because people are always waiting to die. And he's like, whoa, 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 don't be afraid. You're not going to die. And so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. So that's Jehovah Shalom. And that's one of God's names, right? And so when, when Jesus is, is labeled all these things in Isaiah 9, 6, one of them is the Prince of Peace. But what's interesting about this is you have God who's coming to Gideon at this point, Will, and he's saying, you see all these wicked nations around you, Gideon? I want you to go smash them in the face. I want you to go fight them. I want you to go free my people. I want you to get out of the wine press. I want you to stop hiding. I want you to stop in your cowardice. I want you to go fight evil. And Gideon responds, oh, you're calling me to war? I'm going to call this place the Lord is peace. Yeah, that is interesting. How do you how do you square that? We don't like to square those. We don't like to square those because when we consider peace, we think... It's the absence of strife. It's the absence of strife. That is not the way the Bible is describing things. I'll tell you what peace is not. Peace is not hiding in a wine press, terrified of what's going to happen to you for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's not shalom. That is not shalom. And so what God is doing is he's coming to you know his servant, this, this cowardly man, he's you know, hiding, and he's like, hey, mighty warrior, get out of the wine press, and I want you to fight for the cause of righteousness. I want you to stand for the people of God. I want you to go out and confront the evil of this world and fight. Mm. And when Gideon reconciles that and sees that the Lord is not going to kill him for being in his presence, that there's some favor of the Lord upon him despite all of his imperfections, and he senses that God is calling him into a mission that he cannot lose. Now, all of a sudden, he goes from being in a position where it's just cowardice and fear and misery and hiding to where now he's like, no, the Lord is peace. Because what peace is, even, even if the circumstances around you are all raging, peace is knowing that you're in the will of God. Hmm. Peace is knowing that he holds your tomorrow. Peace is knowing that even if things don't go your way, God is ultimately working out a plan of salvation that is going to be for his glory and for the, his own people's good. And there's peace in that, even though Gideon is going to have a lot, <laughs> a lot of like, are you sure about this? Uh, and tests, right? Yeah, because even Shalom gives more of a broader context of like a completeness, a wholeness. Mm -hmm. So it's like all of our lives when we're just bits and pieces we're not complete or whole like when we're not doing what we're called to there is that tension in our life no matter how peaceful everything is around us no matter how much the least amount of confrontation possible but if i'm not doing what i'm supposed to be doing then my soul in a sense is different yeah totally 
And and in this, I think, you know, there's part of this that I think is applicable for today. Um, and this might not be the most popular thing to say, but in an age of cancel culture, in an age of, you know, you got to be super careful what you say and where you say it, you could lose your job, you could lose your sponsors, you could be deplatformed and all that other nonsense. It is really tempting to get into the wine press and to look at a world that's being overrun by evil and to say, ah, I'm not speaking. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be peaceful <laughs> Yeah, just <laughs> as I wait avoid for things at all costs uh, for the sake of peace. Yeah. As the world burns around me. And I think what God would say to each of us is no, <laughs> get out of the wine press, do the righteous thing, fight evil where you find it, stand for righteousness in all of its forms. And man, we live in a world where, you know, it's like the Edmund Burke line, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. We're living at an age that I think is defined by that truth. Like good men are quiet and evil is just running rampant. And I, I, I don't know how anybody could disagree with that. I think maybe people might disagree with how we define good and evil, I stick with, you know, a biblical definition and how we go about it. But yeah, yeah. And the world the wants to define too. it with the whims of culture or whatever. But man, we live in an age where cowardice is allowing evil to win. Hmm. And I think God would say, get out of the wine press. Yeah. And so, so to kind of fast forward to, to the end of, of where I want to take you with Gideon, Gideon is like, you know, I want to see all the signs. Are, are you really behind this? You know, he does the famous thing with the fleeces where he says, you know, I'm going to lay out a fleece and if it's wet in the morning and the ground around it's dry, then I'll know you're in it. And then the next morning it's like, okay, if the, if the ground around it is wet, but the, the fleece is dry and it doesn't have the dew on it, then, then I'll know that you're really in this. And what's fascinating, and I've never put this together until I had to prep a, a men's breakfast message on this, but dew in, the, in, in all the ancient literature, biblical or not, ancient literature, Dew is always the favor of the gods. So have you ever heard like the dew of Hermon? No. Like, well, when you read, <laughs> I have it, but you, sorry, you, that's not what you're looking for. But like heaven's dew, the dew of heaven, like you, you'll find that language in scripture. And what it means is it's a land that's blessed. It's not dry. It's not barren. It's not like there's, there's a moisture that's out there. It brings abundant crops. Dew is a wonderful thing. And so it's associated with blessing. Huh. And so what Gideon is saying is, okay, I'm going to lay down a wool fleece, which literally means it, the word there is like the covering of a lamb. And so he lays that down, and that should be the thing that is going to be wet. Like it's, it's got you know all of the reasons why it should be wet. And so the first night, sure enough, it is. It's got dew all over it, but none of the dry ground in the wine press is wet. The next morning. Wild. Because he's on or on a threshing floor. But anyway, then the next time he says, okay, this would be even harder. I want the dew not on the lamb's covering, but on everything else that should be dry. This is so classic human plus classic Bible hero. Yeah, right? Like you get the call and you're all confident. Like, yeah, let's go do this. All right, here's, but first. Here's the altar of peace. I'm going to build it for you. But then it's all these things like, <laughs> show me something. Yeah. And then he shows you something and you're like, one more, yeah, and and he does, he he'll do even more. But the cra the cool thing about this that I that I think Gideon is hinting at is he's saying like, look, okay, I want you to show me that you can control where the blessing of heaven falls. 
Okay, yeah, you've shown me, okay, it's on the fleece and not anywhere else. So you can direct where the blessing go and where it doesn't. But now do the crazier miracle, which is, okay, here's here's the, the lamb's covering. I want that to be dry. And everywhere else that should not have the blessing, show me that you can do that. Mm. Right? Because that's that's more Gideon speed. Like, I, I don't deserve the blessing. It doesn't make sense that God's blessing or favor or protection should fall on me. Have you seen the size of their armies? Have you seen the Midianites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and all these armies that are coming against me? Because Vegas odds are telling me that I should be utterly trampled Show me that your blessing can fall where it doesn't belong. Yeah. That's what's going on. It's not just weird, you know, how about this? <laughs> There's a message here that's going on. And so the Lord does it. And and Gideon is going to respond. And he's like, make a long story short. He, he tears down the altars to Baal and his father's town. And he gets the name Jerubal, which means let Baal contend with him. And he's, he's showing some boldness. And so God's like, okay, I want you to go gather an army. I'm going to make this, I'm going to abbreviate this big time. And so he goes out to all of Israel and he says, hey, we're going to go fight armies, multiple armies that are coming up against us. And I need as many people as I can get. And he manages to recruit 32,000 soldiers. And then God comes to him and says, that's way too many. It's way too many. Like if, if you were to manage to upset your enemies, like you managed to win, even though with 32,000, it's still unlikely, then you're going to take credit for it. And I don't want that to happen. I want you to see that I'm the one who fights your battles for you. So, you know, tell everybody who's feeling cowardly, who doesn't want to fight, tell them they can go home. Free pass. Free pass. And 22,000 people are like, oh, thank the Lord, I'm out. Like, and he's left with 10,000 people. And then he says, okay, I want you to go down to this stream at the bottom of Mount Gilboa, and I want you to tell them all to drink. And everybody who laps with their hand and just kind of throws the water into their mouth, like almost like a dog being sloppy and everything else, I want those guys. But the ones who do it smartly and kneel down and cup their hands and are neat and, you know, the, the, the good, smart people, <laughs> I don't want them. Just give me the ones who lap like a dog, who are like, they look like idiots. Those, that, those are my guys. The least qualified. The least qualified. And so 300 people, 9,700 that were willing to fight, Gideon has to say, you know, God, God doesn't want you. You know, uh, save this for, for later. Maybe we'll call you down the road. But right now, God just wants these 300. And so what happens is God builds out this battle strategy that makes no sense because I want you to remember, why are we talking about Gideon? Because the prophecy of Isaiah is telling us that the great Messiah is going to come and he's going to bring us victory as it was in the days of Midian. So what was it like in the days of Midian? God comes and he calls the least qualified. He calls those that are, that are the messy ones. And what happens He's going to take that small little group, that small little remnant, and he's going to go off to war against a world that seems like it's inevitably going to win. Darkness is in the, in the pole position. It looks like the favorite to win. Light seems to have no chance anymore. And what does God do? He takes Gideon and these 300 men with torches and trumpets and jars and he, he gets them on mountain ridges all around the valley where the enemies are. 
And so, you know, the Midianites are there and the Ammonites are there and they're all in their tents and they're planning and plotting and they're ready for their big invasion. And Gideon goes to his guys and he's like, okay, this is, this is the Lord's plan. You know, I don't, don't blame me, but you know, we're just carrying it out faithfully. I'm going to take a hundred of you guys. I'm going to put you over there on that ridge and I'm going to take you hundred and I'm going to put you over there on that ridge. And then me and these hundred, we're going to stay right here. And at like three o'clock in the morning when everybody's asleep and, and nobody's up, everybody's groggy and kind of confused and it's total darkness out. I'm going to give the sign and I want you to take the jar off of your torches so that it looks like there's a massive army, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have one torch bearer that represents a bunch of people. Yeah. You got one trumpet blower that's supposed to represent a bunch of people. And so now everybody show your torch. And then I want 300 trumpets from all around this valley to just and back then those horns like if you've ever seen those curly horns yeah those shofar and it's coming from every direction and everybody's shouting for the lord and for gideon so i want you to imagine you're in bed 3 a.m and all of a sudden you hear and shouts and screams and everything else and you rush out of your tent and you've got your sword drawn and you haven't Put on all your armor. You're just in a dazed, confused, like it's dark. And you, Midianites, are surrounded by a bunch of Ammonites and Edomites and Moabites that you don't know from your from your neighbor. You, you have no idea who they are, but you know that there's a big invasion happening. Hmm. Guess who you're going to start slaying? Anybody. <laughs> Anybody you don't know. And so that's exactly what happens. All these wicked, evil enemies of God that are standing against his people are thrown into a great confusion and they defeat each other. And then at the end, Gideon says, okay, boys, and all of you who are willing to fight at the beginning, let's clean up the scraps. And so God brings a great victory. And so stop for a moment. How does Gideon, what's Gideon's responsibility? How did he bring the victory, Will? He just listened to God. He listened to God. He obeyed God. But this specific battle strategy is God coming to him and saying, look, like, I know you're way outnumbered. There's like more than 100,000 of these guys. You got 300. You should not survive. Yeah, forced. Yeah. You're, like God did this to them. Yeah, this is. there's no question that God brought about this victory. Gideon, all I want you to do is blow your trumpet and shout to the Lord. And the Hebrew word for shout is the same as singing. And so, like, there's a lot of those old, you know, 80s, 90s. Shout to the Lord. There you go. All the earth. Yeah, That's I mean, a good when, one. When it says shout to the Lord, what does it mean? You're not just going, blah, 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 you know, shouting. <laughs> it's singing. You know, shout to the north. There's another one that there was an awesome Christian song back in the day. But it's singing. It's literally singing. And so what is God teaching Gideon? If you want the Lord to show up and provide you with victory, what's your role? You show courage enough to stand up to evil, but then you sing and you blow your trumpet and you watch the Lord bring your enemies into great confusion and then they all defeat each other. You know, one of the most encouraging things on that pattern, like when you look at our culture, can you, do you notice how 
the causes that are opposed to biblical righteousness are starting to destroy one another? I am currently. Yeah. Can we, do you have any examples that jump right into your mind? I mean, the are we going here? Yeah, get out of the wine press. Let's go. All right. I mean, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has shown the university system is flawed. Mm-hmm. How so? Uh, I mean... You want me to take the driver? No, no, no. It's it just things like uh, when the four presidents of four Ivy League schools were in front of Congress. Was it three? It was just MIT, Penn, and Harvard. Yep. Uh, and they were basically rewriting the rules to allow anti-Semitism. Right. That now... You, you can't can use say, wrong pronouns, but you can call for genocide. Yeah, as long <laughs> as it doesn't lead to genocide, you can say whatever. Right. Like if there's no action corresponding to, which is the complete opposite of what safe space free speech has been yeah. in the university system lately. Which really shows it's for some and not for others. Of course. And that's all the intersectional stuff. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things where a lot of people have found, you know, it used to be that Jewish people would consider be considered in the intersectional spectrum of on the victim victim side of that equation. And now next to the Palestinians, they're considered the oppressor side of the equation and so they're now evil. They're colonizers. They're we don't care if there's a genocide or calls for genocide against them. And you're seeing the side that's traditionally been viewed as or understood as we're on the side of the oppressed that are really showing their cards and in a really wicked way. You know, I've, I've said before I think all the intersectionality stuff is satanic. It is. And and now you see people going, whoa, whoa, how could they possibly say such things? Um, well, now they're starting to fight each other. And you see that on the LGBTQ spectrum side of things where, you know, you have really strong feminists that are open lesbians that were heroes 15 years ago that when they take a stand for for women's rights and athletics now are being devoured by the by the very same activist because you can never be extreme enough and they're beginning to eat their own and it's like you look at the world and you see god oftentimes when he brings about his victory will cause wick the wicked to be thrown into confusion to where they defeat one another for him Mm. and it's it's always interesting when you're able to see that so i just i mean keep a lookout for it you know, keep your eyes open because that seems to be how God moves. The role of God's people, get out of the wine press, speak truth, be with grace, blow your trumpet and sing, you know, call on his name, chase after him. And that's where you see victory. Yeah, because for a mighty warrior, he doesn't do much fighting. He really does. I mean, later on. He, like I said, they'll come and clean up the scraps, but that's when all of these armies are already decimated and yeah. on the run and totally discombobulated. Shambles, yeah. yeah, they're in shambles. So they're an easy route at that point. But this is something that you don't only see in the story of Gideon. So like uh, Tom talked about this actually in his sermon this past week where Joshua comes up to Jericho Again, Jericho is one of the major cities of the ancient world, and what's the battle strategy that God gives? Walk and sing. Walk, blow your trumpets, shout, sing, and God will bring the walls down. And so, man, like, that's pretty wild. Like, this isn't just bizarre, like, oh, here's a kooky Bible story. You know, I'm going to tell you to walk around the city and then blow and shout trumpets, and we read that as kids, and it's neat, but then you get to be an adult, and you're like, that's just weird. 
But when you know what's going on there, to walk around a city in the ancient world, that's what kings did when they were going through their coronation ceremonies. When you walked around a territory, it was saying, all of this territory belongs to me. And so when the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant around Jericho every day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day, and then the seven priests blow seven trumpets and the walls fall down, all of that is is telling you this is God's coronation ceremony. He is being made king of the promised land. And the people are being given victory when they blow trumpets and when they shout to the Lord, God brings the victory. And you see that same thing when you get to the very end of the scriptures. And so remember, we're still, this is not a, a total detour off of Isaiah 9, 6, hmm. but it's saying, how does God bring about the victory? How, how is this like the days of Midian? You know, you shout, you blow the trumpets and God brings the victory and you get to the book of Revelation and you see the same thing, like God is going to bring about the final war, the great day of the apocalypse, when he comes triumphant riding on the white horse. Well, how does that happen? If you open up your Bibles and you go to, to Revelation chapter 19, what's going on there? Like, listen to this. Let me just read it to you. And, and if you know that God brings victory when his people shout and trumpets blow, <laughs> then you'd know what's going on in Revelation because what happens in Revelation is seven angels are given seven trumpets. Gee, that sounds a lot like that sounds a lot like Jericho. Seven angels are given seven trumpets that come out after seven seals are broken. And then what happens? They blow all these trumpets. And then Revelation 19, listen to this, because you should expect some shouting and victory to come. Verse 1, chapter 19 of Revelation. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of all his servants. And once more there, because that's not loud enough yet. So once more they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne, a voice came saying, praise our God, all you, his servants who fear him, small and great. And we're not done. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Lots of shouts. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And so then what comes? Heavens open. The Lord comes on his white horse. And what does he do? He fights and wins the battle for us. What's our role? Shout. Shout. Sing. Get those trumpets blowing. Stand. Be courageous. Like, don't allow evil to go. Know that this life is a mist and a vapor and fight for something that's more meaningful that lasts forever. Like it, that's what faith really is. It's looking at, at circumstances 
that are either personal, national, whatever they are. It's looking at circumstances that do not make sense and trusting the promise of God to bring about victory. And so now when you look at Isaiah and you have him coming and saying, hey, it's going to be like it was in the days of Gideon when he fought against Midian, and you're going to have someone who comes to the farthest off, the, the people who are living in darkness, the ones that have run away, the ones that are tired of being burdened, the ones that have been fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. Man, I'm telling you right now that you can take all your weapons of war and throw them and the fire because they will be burned as fuel for fire. Those are the last words before you jump into this. For unto us a child is born. You're supposed to go, like the child is born. We've got a savior who's coming, who's going to fight for us, who's going to defeat evil, who's going to do all these wonderful things. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to take care of all this evil and corruption. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And I just want to stop for a moment because if you lived... (laughs) At a time when Isaiah wrote this, he writes all these things that are totally contradictory. Do you notice any things that don't make sense together in all those lists of names? He is intentional. Like if you, we read this now because it's Christmas cards and because we believe in the Trinity and we know how the gospel story goes and we have no problem with this. But if you're living in a monotheistic culture in the days of Isaiah and you're faithful and you hear him say that God is going to be born. Mm. say what what do you mean a child is going to be born and he's going to be called mighty god what do you mean he's going to be born and yet he's everlasting where was he before he was born like i don't i honestly i don't know how jewish people who reject jesus as messiah make sense of this verse Mm. a son is given who's going to be called mighty god a son is given and he's one with the everlasting father to where he would take that name upon himself you know, and, and he's the prince of peace, yet all the, the government rests upon his shoulder, meaning he's ultimately sovereign over all things. You do, that doesn't mean, by the way, he controls Congress, <laughs> though he does. What it means is like he's sovereign over all things. He's not out of control. Like he is, he's operating his kingdom. He is reigning over all things in heaven and on earth, and nothing happens without his say-so. He is sovereign over all. And God is coming and saying, I'm giving you myself in the form of my son who's going to become weak. Mm. Weak as a child, born, given to you. And remember when, when, when Gideon is like, I don't want to fight. And God's like, get out and fight. And he's like, oh, you're the, the Lord of peace. Here you have Isaiah who's like, yeah, that's, this is the prince of peace who's coming to put an end to your wars. He's coming to give you peace that even as the world rages all around you and as your circumstances rage all around you and life throws you curveballs and pain and tears and heartache, he reigns. Mm. God has given a son so that there is no more gloom. The darkness has cannot win. You need not feel like the battle is your own. Burn your traditional weapons of war and fight the way he calls you to. And how is that again? Sing, Mm. shout, blow the trumpet, 
trust in his victory, but be courageous to stand for him and with him and watch him get the victory. So verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His kingdom will always be expanding. And when Isaiah wrote that, if you would have told Isaiah that two billion plus plus people around the world, whether it's sincere or not, call his name Hmm. as the Lord. Isaiah would have been like, wait, what, two billion? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, what happened? On every nation under heaven? Like, what do you mean his his kingdom is not going to know any limits to its increase and and the peace that he brings, not just between man, but between man and God? Like, there will be no end to the peace that he forges because, by the way, that peace goes on forever. It's infinite. It's eternal. You have access to it. And that throne of David that all of you are lamenting, that is sifting between your fingers, this this kingdom that's falling apart that the Assyrians and the Babylonians are destroying, well, one is coming from his line, from the stump of Jesse, from this tree that has fallen. And he's going to be the shoot that now establishes a new kingdom, that establishes it and upholds it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This kingdom that you feel is lost, Oh, it's just getting started. Put your hope in him. And oh, by the way, guess who does all this? Just in case you missed it, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's where Isaiah 9, 7 wraps up. Pretty glorious when you, I, I don't know about you, but like when I see all of that together, it makes that for unto us a child is born. Yeah, and it makes sense. Wow. God is coming to fight for us. Mm, All we got to do is sing. Sing, shout, let it all out. (laughs) That's all I could think about. It's not sing, shout, let it all out. It's shout, shout, let it all out. I know, but when you say that, it fits. (laughs) Shout, shout, let it all out. These are the things I can. What is the next word? Do without. Do without. Come on. I'm talking to you. Come on. You want to sing that to our audience before we close? I think we just did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's. Tears for fears, baby. That's very, that's very sacred. Sing. That'll definitely put them in the, in the Christmas and worship mood. it all out. These are the things I can do without. Are you looking at These are the things I can do without. Come on. I'm talking to you. Come on. I'm sure that's what Tears for Fears was talking about. Shout, shout, let it all out. All the rest of the stuff is what we can do without. Come on. I'm talking to you. It's It works. Come on. <laughs> we stumbled into something. Anybody who's younger than, how do you know that? I'm surprised you know that song. One word, one was Tears for Fears popular. Everybody. Did they do that song? Everybody Wants yeah. to Rule the World. Oh, 1984? Oh, yeah, they're old. <laughs> I was I was six. Really? I was six. I was I was around. You just don't seem like you were born in the seventies. Seventy eight. But that just seems crazy. Like it doesn't it doesn't feel like you should be able to say I was born in the seventies. Why? You, you seem younger than that. Okay. To be honest, it's crazy to me that you think that's old. When I was growing up, if you were born in like the teens or the twenties, eighty four was forty years ago. Yeah, I know. Golden age. All right, so taking our, our benediction from Tears for Fears, <laughs> I want to remind you that as you consider 
your Savior and you consider all the battles that are in front of you, shout. Hmm. Shout out your praises. Trust that he's going to deliver your victory, and that is why Gideon can look at him and call him the Lord of Peace. You win my battles for me. I just have to be still. That's the promise of the scriptures, right? Amen. So I hope you have an awesome rest of this Christmas season. Have a great New Year uh, celebration, and I hope that you have an awesome 2024. We're due for one, right? Everybody says that every year. It's not going to be, though. And, yeah. We We have a national election. It's going to be a wild year, actually. I don't see how we're getting out of this year without some pretty crazy stuff. So be praying. Be shouting. Pray that the Lord's enemies just (laughs) continue to defeat each other. Confusion. That's right. So God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you next time on the Out of Water Podcast. We never see you. I don't know why Sam always says we'll see you. It's a podcast. (laughs) (sighs) We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.